right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are transitioning into another letter. We are in the segment of general letters. We've gone through Hebrews, James. We've already gone through 1 Peter, and now we're jumping into 2 Peter. And what do you know? Yes, it's a follow-up to 1 Peter. But we got a different painting, and yet it all ties together. Don't you love, man, look at how many, Kevin, what do we call this? Diptych. This is a diptych. When you take two different paintings, put them together, and they look like one. It's an incredible picture. Obviously, our phrase, our one, uh, our, our phrase really for First Peter was living hope. And then what we're going to get into, living hope, remember, amongst suffering, right? That's really what it looks like. Now, when you get into Second Peter, and I'll begin to go through the backdrop and the authorship and the title and all that good stuff. What we're going to get into Second Peter really is amongst the suffering, you're going to have false teaching. That's really what Second Peter is about. How do you get through all this false teaching? Well, our one word that we have, it's, it's pretty simple. It's master. Jesus has to be your master amidst all of this, amidst the, the false teaching, amidst the, you know, the prophetic word that the Lord speaks through prophets to articulate the word. And then we'll get into even the butterflies and what they look like. And it's a really unique picture. But let me go to Second Peter 2, 1, which talks about the master See, there's these false prophets. It says, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So here you have Peter functioning now with the gift of prophecy, right? He's saying, hey, look, there will be false teachers among you. In fact, here's what they're going to do. They're going to secretly bring in, we're going to get into this tomorrow. They're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, things that go against the truth, go against the gospel. And they're going to even get to the point of even denying the master who bought them. Jesus Christ. They're going to deny Christ himself, who actually went to the cross, who sacrificed himself on behalf of them and their sins and our sins. They're going to even deny him and then they're going to bring and it will bring swift destruction on themselves. So what do you do when there's these false teachings that's going on? He says, you have to hang on to the master, not deny the master, the master who's in charge of everything of our lives. So that's what we're going to begin to unfold in Second Peter. Now, look, let me just say this. Somebody out there is going to be like, we're going to talk about false teaching? Oh, that sounds like it's old. We don't have that anymore. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> let me begin to unpack Second Peter. Uh, the authorship, okay, many people would say, based on just verse 1, is Simon Peter. Look, interesting enough, two names. We'll get into that. A slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. So clearly we see the title is in Peter, the name himself, okay? But what's crazy is, is that there's a questioning about the authorship of 2 Peter. I'm going to begin to unpack this, but let me just say this. In verse 1, clearly, Kevin, he identifies himself as the author. Now, if you continue on in, in 3.1, it says, Dear friends, now this is the second letter I've written to you. Now, Kevin, if he says this is the second letter, he's probably referencing the first letter. <laughs> He says, in both letters, I want to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder. Now, just, just you use that as a reference point because he refers to the first letter. So here we can see, all right, kind of looks like this. Then if you go to 114, in 114, I'm in 2 Peter 114, it says, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. Kevin, I think, uh, do you remember, can you go to John 21, 18, 19? So here you have the author saying, Christ told him he's going to die, lay aside his tent. In John 21, 18, this happens clearly to Jesus talking to Peter. He says, I assure you, this is Jesus saying to him, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk around wherever you wanted. 
But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and somebody else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify, signify, but what kind of death he would glorify God. And after this, he said, he told him, follow me. So Jesus predicts, prophesies Peter's death, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty clear. And when you go back to 2 Peter 1.14, in referencing, is Peter the author, <clears throat> at least based on this verse alone, it sure would say, yeah, this is me, Peter, because Jesus already talked about this. I'm going to lay aside my tent, lay aside my death. So <clears throat> there's a couple things. Now, when you go to verses 16 through 18, I'm in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says this at the very end. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God, the father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Verse 18. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Kevin, this is Peter saying I'm, I'm with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. So you have multiple examples. I mean, to me, it seems pretty clear. But yet here's what's crazy. John MacArthur writes, critics have been more controversial over this book than any other book in the New Testament. The church fathers actually were slow to give acceptance to the fact that Peter was a part of this book. Isn't that weird? Just by us looking at this. And in fact, it wasn't until the third century, one of the church fathers, Origen, actually said this is scriptural. Third century. Crazy enough, even in this, leading reformers were hesitant to accept Second Peter as Peter writing the book. So hopefully you've seen a couple of illustrations in Scripture of why we believe that Peter wrote this. Uh, there's two styles of writing, and this is why. Kevin, who, are, who wrote First Peter? That's not meant to be a trick question, but it is. Silas. Silas wrote First Peter. Uh, he, he typed it. He wrote it. You know, whatever you want to say... <laughs> It was obviously the words of Peter, but maybe there's something in that. And then clearly, Peter wrote Second Peter, or at least he used somebody else, but he didn't use Silas. But here's what's kind of fun to me. Okay, we already have those verses in place. But Peter uses some words that are similar to how he would have preached in the book of Acts. So if you want to go to 1-2, see Second Peter 1-2, the next verse, uh, it just says, May grace and peace... Uh, be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of our Jesus Christ. Of our, uh, I'm sorry, of Jesus our Lord. You know, just because of time-wise, I want to just let you know that there's certain words that Peter would have used in correlation to possibly how he would have communicated in the book of Acts. You have these words such as obtained that Peter would have used in Second Peter as well as in the book of Acts. There's these language of godliness in Second Peter 1 and Acts 3. There's these wage, this wage of iniquity. In fact, can you go to Acts 1, 18 for me, Kevin? Acts 1, verse 18. Acts 1, 18, it just says this. Now, this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. So there's that language, okay? Unrighteous wa wages. Kevin, can you go down to 2 Peter 2, 13 and 15? Uh, it just talks about this unrighteous wages, this wages of iniquity, and so that's what you're going to see here. It just says suffering harm as the payment for unrighteousness. You could say, man, that's a stretch. Go to verse 15 if you don't mind as well. But certain people don't use this type of language in referencing Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There are certain phrases that I'm sure I use all the time. In fact, when we first did revive school with, you know, the Old Testament, it was always plowing through the word, right? Plowing through the word. And then 
Every once in a while, I might use that in the New Testament, right? Just maybe a little bit. And we kind of laugh. We kind of, <laughs> he said it again. I mean, it's kind of the same mentality. Is that language Peter uses, okay, in, in his preaching in the book of Acts, as well as what he writes down, you're going to see some, he references some of the same Old Testament events. Uh, in 2 Peter 2, 5 and in, in uh, 1 Peter 3, he uses some of the same language. A couple other things, just so you have a picture. Uh, you know, in the, in, uh, one of the books, you're going to see the second coming is near. And then you have to learn how to deal with the delay that Christ hasn't come back. So it seems similar, but yet it seems a little bit maybe distant. Uh, here's the big question. And this is the funniest argument to me about why people didn't like Peter as the author. <laughs> Some thought maybe it was written actually by a false teacher. It's the weirdest argument. Why would you, as a false teacher, speak against false teachers? That doesn't make any sense. But, Kevin, crazy enough, that was actually one of the arguments. Funny argument. That, I mean, it seems like false teachers come up over and over again in the, what we've been reading, you know, whether it's Paul's teaching, whether it's in the Old Testament and the prophets. It's like everywhere. So that's a goofy. It's a goofy argument, but I love presenting goofy things sometimes. Uh, okay, where, did, where would Peter have written this? Okay, I really believe this is Peter. It's Second Peter. I believe he's the author of this. No sense to waver in that. I believe many people would say he wrote from the prison in Rome where he was facing imminent death. Uh, it's kind of like Paul writing to Timothy saying, hey, this is my last book. You know, this is my last words that I'm articulating. Here you have Peter kind of having the same mentality. Uh, you know, there's this language that he was martyred upside down. The tradition says that he was killed upside down because he didn't want to be killed like Christ was. He wasn't worthy of dying the same way Christ was. So he asked to be uh, upside down. Kind of an interesting thought. But because it doesn't say who he's specifically writing to, if it's Peter and he referenced the first letter, I think you have to say he's writing to the same people. We don't see that in Second Peter, which is why some people have problems with that. But because of the reference of this is the, that there's a first letter, he's probably writing to Kevin, if you want to go back to this list, those that are in dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, and in Bithynia. So I think it's fair to say he's already writing to these people about dealing with suffering. And now he just says, guys, amidst your suffering, don't cave into the false teaching. Because it's really easy to want to have a better uh, truth, Right? A better answer. Maybe it's greener on the other side if I maybe adhere to some of this language. And so this is kind of uh, where you're going to see Peter go. There's obviously more to this, uh, more to this text, but let's begin to unpack if we can. Second Peter 1, 1 says, Simeon Peter, I like this, obviously Simon mean in Hebrew, and Peter is the Greek term, which then Peter then is also Cephas. So, Kind of common to actually have two names. He's a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Kevin, do you remember how he labeled himself earlier on? Do you remember this? Remember the last chapter, just yesterday, he labeled himself as a fellow elder. Remember this? And a witness. And so now he's kind of going to a new level, to be honest. He's identifying himself. First of all, he submits himself to Christ as a slave, but he also functions as one who has an apostolic covering, an apostolic leading because of who he is in Christ. And he says this, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege, which means he's writing to believers. Okay, I think that's pretty clear. He's obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So their faith comes through the righteousness of Christ. 
That's what he's saying. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we can now have this equal privilege. And I love this picture. And he says in verse two, a very common Christian greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Very similar to first Peter one, two. It has the same language. Okay, so again, you're going to see some of these tie in. And then he just says this in verse three uh, and he begins to unpack some uh, Tom Constable says the conditions. This is kind of interesting. The conditions of Christians. Okay, and he says his divine power has given us everything required for life (laughs) and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Kevin, we say this over and over with these general uh, letters, these general epistles. This one verse could be a sermon for four weeks. Look at, look at this phrase, his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything we have, everything we need, everything required to get through life. Now, I want to, I want to, I love this phrase for life and godliness. One theologian actually called this, it's required to get us through a godly life. So divine power is, I think this is a fair statement is all we need in order to get through life. His divine power through Christ is all we need. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So let me just go there. The power of his resurrection is everything we need. In Philippians 3.10, Kevin, if you would, would you go there, please? Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10 says this, my goal is to know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Our goal is to know him and to know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection, you guys, is literally talking about how Jesus died. He was buried. And guess what? He came back to life. We need to function in that power. How do we know? Because, Kevin, if you'll go to Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, this power is available to us. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, it says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength? He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heaven. So because of this power that was displayed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's all we need. Kevin, it doesn't say anything about reading your Bible. Doesn't say anything about going to church. Doesn't say anything about lighting candles. Doesn't say anything about getting on your knees. It says, if you go back to Second Peter, uh, one verse three, His divine power through Christ is everything that we need. That's an awesome picture to me, and it's available to us. And He's called us by His own glory and goodness. It's all of the working of God. It has nothing to do. With us, But here's where it gets really interesting. He gives us these resources. Okay, this is kind of an interesting way to look at it. But I really, I really like what Constable says. He says, so we've been given a resource. Okay, to get through life, Kevin, and it is the power of resurrection. Okay, that is a divine resource that we have access to. The reality is in order to function in a godly life, you need the power of the resurrection of Christ. That would be a good starting point. Continues on with this quote unquote resource, right? And he says this, by these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through these promises, you may share in the divine nature, 
escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. So what's another resource that we have, Kevin, according to this? Precious promises. Yeah, precious promises. Because of these precious promises that Jesus has given to us, I'm coming back. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I think it's just this language. I'm coming. Hold on to these things. That's a great resource, which, Kevin, it kind of makes me go to our word that we have again uh, in First Peter. Is He's our living hope. That, that kind of a summary of these precious promises that the prophetic, the prophets in the Old Testament are actually communicating. So this picture of, you know, the prophets, God speaking to them, they're, they're prophesying the promises that are coming. And it also says so that through them, these promises, you may share in the divine nature. So in other words, you might have to have this understanding. And this is kind of a, an interesting way to, to look at this. Because of Christ working in us, he's enabling us to look more like him in this process. It's a promise. Through these things, you're going to share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption. There's that living hope that is in the world because of evil desires. But you might have to go through some of this, but you know that you can hold on to the end. It's a resource, the power of resurrection. And it's a cool one. You get these precious promises. But here's my challenge. A lot of us don't know what the precious promises are because maybe we've never dug into the word before. And you can't uh, fight false teaching if you don't know the truth itself. Don't ever study the false teaching. You study the real deal. And those are the precious promises that he, that he gives us. So kind of a cool picture here of what we're seeing. Uh, verse 5, it says this. For this very reason, make every effort. Okay, make every effort, it says, to supplement your faith. And then he begins to unpack a list. So if you want to, let's just say this. <laughs> okay. Here we have a man. Okay. He's pretty excited about life. And let's just call him Mr. Faith. Okay. If you want to supplement faith, Mr. Faith, the, the word supplement, it's an add-on and it should enhance, right, what already is there, right? That's really what it should be like. Now, Mindy over here at the painting, she painted seven butterflies on the second Peter painting. Over here, she has one painting. I know that these seven, these are what we would consider supplements. These butterflies, just hang on here for a second. And I love about artists, you can communicate whatever you want about what you see. That makes sense? So let's just say this one butterfly is faith. Let's just say that, okay? And then here's the deal. These seven then would enhance this one butterfly. That's that's the reality is how can I enhance this one butterfly? How can you and I enhance Mr. Faith or Mrs. Faith? Right. That's kind of what we're after here. So here's what he says. You make every effort to supplement. You guys, when I studied this, I got like super excited about this text. I don't know why. Maybe I just completely missed it. But I was like, how do I enhance my faith? Like I want to grow in my faith. And without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. So if it's impossible to please God without faith, you should want to know how do I grow my faith, right? That's really what we should know. If we want to please God, how do I build up my faith? I hear it all the time. Lord, help. They always say, help my unbelief, which is scriptural. But Lord, help me want to have faith in what you're doing. And here's what he says. I'm going to give you seven ways, seven supplements, okay, that are in a little package, okay? (laughs) You don't have to buy them. (laughs) It's clearly here in, in, in scripture. He says this. Here's how you supplement your faith with goodness. 
This word goodness, it means everything that fulfills its purpose or function properly. It's an interesting definition. Okay, but then it also implies this. Goodness can mean a Christian who actually is fulfilling his calling, like you're doing it. You're walking it out. Okay, so the way that you supplement your faith is by goodness. You're fulfilling the purpose or the function properly. Okay, in other words, you're not sitting on your rear. But then at the same time, the supplement of your faith is with goodness, but then goodness with knowledge. So, Kevin, here's an interesting question. It's a trick question. Let's see if you can figure it out. Do you have to have goodness in order to have the next supplement? It kind of looks that It kind of looks like that, doesn't it? So in order to begin to build your faith, you got to walk it out with goodness first. You got to actually walk out your calling. And then the second layer is this. The second layer is knowledge. This knowledge can be defined. Nelson says it's practical wisdom. Okay. In other words, you're, um, you're, let me just say it a different way. You're acquiring information. Okay. And then you're actually applying it. Right. There's this knowledge of all that I know that God has revealed in his word. And I actually have something to do with this. I don't know. Rich, you got any other definition? Any other thoughts of knowledge? Just to know about something. That was a lot simpler than what I said. Kind of like yours better. <laughs> so here you have goodness acting it out. And then it says goodness with knowing something. Goodness with knowledge. Okay, now remember, this is our supplements, okay? These are our little butterflies, right, that enhance faith. Goodness will lead to knowledge. And then it says this, uh, knowledge, Kevin, I'm in verse 5. Uh, yeah, sorry, going into verse 6. Knowledge then with, it says, self-control. So the way that you enhance your faith is you display goodness, knowledge, and self-control. Kind of an interesting perspective. Uh, Self-control can be defined as mastery of self, disciplined moderation, and you're controlling one's desires and passions. Why do you think that would enhance your faith? Drew, you got any ideas? How does self-control enhance your faith with that definition? Any thoughts? Mm, I think it focuses it. It totally focuses it. I think that's what it does. It focuses it. It strips down probably the worldly things. It removes those things so that you can focus solely on what you've been asked to do, which is please him, which is through faith. But you can't do that, okay, without knowing, it's kind of an interesting, what you've been called to. As you walk out your calling, then you begin to exemplify self-control. Now, Scripture then continues on. Once there's self-control, I really like this one, self-control then with endurance. This endurance, I love this definition, says it's need to be, uh, you're keeping on in spite of adversity. You know, sometimes when I sign off my emails, I always have this little phrase, keeping on. Honestly, it has a lot to do with endurance. It has a lot to do with perseverance. Plus, I don't know how to spell perseverance very good, so I'd rather say keeping on. And that's the reality. Like, because of self-control, I am now able, through the Spirit of God, able to walk this thing out, which enhances faith. You're building your muscles as you continue, your faith muscles as you continue to endure. These are all called supplements to enhance Mr. Faith, right? That's really what we're after here. And I, I just think for me, how have I missed this? I know how I've missed it. I haven't studied the word like this. But isn't that crazy how he gives us an outline in Scripture how to work through 
growing your faith. (laughs) And then in the process of endurance, scripture then says endurance with godliness. So praise God, you haven't had to have godliness up until this point. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But it says endurance with godliness. You know, this godliness can be defined, okay, as a behavior that reflects the character of God. It's possibly a desire to put Christ in all aspects of your life, which really, you guys, goes back to our phrase that we have for here in Second Peter. It says he is our master. It's a desire to please God. And I like this definition in all relationships of life. So how do you enhance your own faith? One, you begin to walk out your calling. You know what he's speaking to you about. You have the self-control, you're enduring, you're reflecting him in this godliness. And then six and seven, these are the last two supplements. Scripture says in regards to, at least in this text of enhancing faith, it just says godliness with brotherly affection. The definition is, is this thoughtful consideration of fellow believers. You're putting everybody else before you. I like what Constable says here, this overt acts of kindness. Like how can I go above and beyond the the extra, the spirit of too much for my brother. Once you're in tune with the Lord and functioning out godliness, you just naturally begin to display these things to people. It's kind of really how it works, right? It's, it's kind of like, how can I go, you know, national night out, it's over. How can I help bless my neighbors as they're tired and they want to go home? Like, how can I help them? Can I help them clean up? Can I help them pick up the trash? Like, whatever the context is, how can I reflect Christ in this? And it means going above and beyond. And then finally, it kind of wraps all of it up. And it's really kind of interesting. The last one is love and brotherly affection with love. It's really the highest form. Any commentary commentator you say, you look this up. It's always the definition. This is the highest form of love. It's God's kind where literally they seek the welfare of the person loved above your own welfare. So you're thinking of that person with affection. And then guess what you're doing? You're doing it. It's kind of a cool picture. And it gets to the point, you guys, this kind of love means you'll give up yourself for them. It's the John 3, 16. That's the model that we have. That's the model that we're talking about of this type of love. John 3, 16, it says this, for God so loved the world that what? That he gave his one and only begotten son. So that everybody who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So this true love implies you're giving up your life for somebody else. That's the ultimate way to enhance your faith. You give up your life. So I just look at this and say, man, God, I I really want to grow in my walk with the Lord. I really want to grow in my faith in him. (laughs) He says, good, get started. Start praying through goodness. Start praying through knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly affection and love because this is a way that you can actually overcome um, the things that are around you. And in closing, I just want to read this. It says in verse 8 and 9, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, which means you've never ever just hit the status and then you're done. You're always growing in these areas. He says, if you go through these things, they will keep you from being useless, praise God, or unfruitful, praise God, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you function in these things, you're not useless. (laughs) If you function in these things, you will actually display fruit because in verse 9, the person who lacks these things, who doesn't do the supplements of faith, 
is considered blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Woo! Reasons for no fruit in your life, you're blind and short-sighted and you truly have forgotten what Christ has done in your life. There's a lot more to this, but I'll just tell you this, I just need to hang out here. Lord, increase my faith. May I begin to walk these things out more that look like you. Have a blessed day, guys. We'll continue our discussion plowing through 2 Peter chapter 2 tomorrow. Thanks.